everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. So excited to be with you guys tonight. We have a great show for you. We put this one together quickly. I'm so excited. I was able to get the amazing guests I was able to get. And we put it together quickly because, as some of you may know, there was a leaked document from the Supreme Court. We are going to get into what this document reveals, this leaked document from the Supreme Court. Very excited that we're going to be talking to two people who have very interesting perspectives on this issue. Also, if you don't already subscribe, please make sure you subscribe because we are almost at 70,000 subs, guys. Almost at 70,000. That's really exciting. So you just hit the subscribe and then you hit the bell. And it's a way to support the show, make sure that you don't miss any streams. And if you don't already support the show, please do that at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And you get great bonus content, extended interviews, and it helps the show happen. Also, you can become YouTube members at youtube.com slash the Katie Helper Show. You just join and you get free Odie emojis and badges like that. So I'm just going to bring in our first guest. Again, very excited that she was able to come. Her name is Amy Littlefield. She's the nation's abortion access correspondent and a journalist who focuses on reproductive rights, healthcare, and religion. Hello, Amy. How are you? Hi, Katie. Great to be with you, although I wish it was under different circumstances. I know. I know. Next time, hopefully, maybe we'll have something to celebrate. Yeah. You can always dig for good news, but (laughs) it's a little hard today. (laughs) Yeah, it, it is hard, especially in this area. But can you just tell people what happened last night, why we're having this stream right now, what the breaking news is? Right, right. So we've known for months that the Supreme Court is going to issue a big decision on abortion rights. And most people expected that it was going to happen in June towards the end of the Supreme Court's term, because often they save their big, juiciest, most controversial decisions for the end. Um, And based on the way that the arguments in the Supreme Court case surrounding Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban went back in December, a lot of experts thought this was going to be the case that accomplished what you know Republicans and the Christian right have been trying to do for the past 50 years and overturned Roe v. Wade and ended the nationwide legal right to abortion. And so what we found out last night, Politico published a leaked draft of the decision um, in which a majority of the justices appear poised to do exactly that. Um, And not only are they striking down 50 years of precedent, but they're doing it in actually the clearest, (laughs) most unequivocal terms that they could have. I mean, there was a lot of speculation about whether, especially so close to the midterm elections, the the court might try to hedge a little bit. Maybe they'd let Mississippi ban abortion at 15 weeks, but would they really say that, you know, Roe v. Wade should be struck down? And in fact, that's exactly what they did. They said that, you know, Roe was egregiously wrongly decided from the beginning and Roe v. Wade and the subsequent decision, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, that came in the 1990s. Um, And along with those two decisions, the nationwide right to legal abortion, as we know it, uh, would fall. 
And so that returns the issue of legal abortion to the states, which means we're going to have a situation where abortion is legal in maybe about half the country and and illegal slash criminalized in uh, about 26 states um, in the next few weeks to months. Now, I don't want to focus too much on this because it's not the biggest issue at play here, but there is a lot of speculation on who leaked it and why. What is the significance of that discussion? Well, I mean, there's never been a leak like this, right? Like, so this is unprecedented, but I mean, so is what the court is doing in this decision. So um, it's it's a little hard to see the amount of focus on you know, the hand-wringing over the norms. Um, and wow, this is really breaking with, you know, the integrity of the court and the norms, because I think the bigger story is obviously the decision itself. Um, I think I've seen speculation on both sides. Some people think that this was, you know, a clerk who got angry about the content of the decision and decided to, you know, seek revenge by leaking it. And then some people think, well, maybe this is a strategic decision by the conservative wing of the court to, you know, leak this decision and and kind of see how the public reacts, you know, before they set it in stone, especially this close again to the elections. I mean, I don't know. (laughs) What I can tell you is what I've seen the impact being so far, which is that, you know, the, the Republican Party and the Christian right, which have been so closely allied on this, you know, 50 year attack on abortion rights, as we know it in this country, They've achieved what they've achieved through a strategy of incrementalism, through the sort of like frog in the boiling water strategy, right, where they take away your rights a little tiny bit at a time. They come for for poor people first. They come for black and brown people first. They come for, you know, people in southern states first. And then they chip and they chip and they make it a little harder and waiting periods and ultrasound laws. and, And then all of a sudden you know, we're seeing, you know, laws that outsource enforcement to private bounty hunters and and anything short of that is like not even that radical. You know, the Overton window has just moved so far and that's been an extremely successful strategy. Something like this, leaking the Supreme Court decision, overturning Roe v. Wade, but they haven't yet overturned Roe v. Wade because it's not official. You know, it, it it's this sort of incremental, like bit by bit, just get everyone used to its strategy, whether that was the intention or not, I don't know, but that seems to be sort of what's happening. So were you surprised by this in any way? I was not surprised because based on the way that the justices were talking about Roe v. Wade and abortion in December, you know, Justice Amy Coney Barrett saying, well, do we really need abortion? Because like we have safe haven laws now and and people can just you know, carry a pregnancy to term and then drop the baby off at the nearest fire station, right? Like questions like that made it pretty clear that the justices appointed by Donald Trump were about to do exactly what they were put on the Supreme Court to do, which is overturn Roe v. Wade, right? Like that's been the plan all along. Um, I think something can be shocking without being surprising. Like I think it was nauseating and upsetting to anyone who cares about the issue of abortion rights and access, because I think until we saw it in black and white, maybe, you know, there was always a chance that it wouldn't happen. Um, But I think really the abortion rights and the reproductive justice movement have been preparing for this and understanding that this is, that the writing is on the wall for, for quite some time. So in a way, I feel like I was shocked without being surprised, if that makes sense. 
And does anything in their argument stand out to you? In the decision? Yeah. You know, one thing that really stood out to me in this decision written by Justice Samuel Alito is the number of times he references, like, sending the question of abortion of this morally complex issue, as he calls it, back to the duly elected representatives of the people, right? Like, he he's trying to frame this um, move by, you know, the unelected justices on the Supreme Court as if he's, you know, putting it to the people to decide. And that's such a contradiction because what they're actually doing is overruling the will of the majority of the people in this country who want Roe v. Wade to stand as a baseline. You know, most, I mean, the, the Supreme Court decision itself is wildly unpopular and, and overrules the will of, of what people want, which is a majority of people want abortion to remain legal nationwide. And so this sort of framing of abortion as, you know, sending it back to the duly representative, <laughs> elected representatives, you know, it felt to me like he was um, like trying to convince people that this was a decision that put something into the hands of the public when in fact it's doing like quite the opposite. Seems very disingenuous. Right. This is kind of an overwhelming question, but you're probably the perfect guest for this. I think a lot of people don't really understand what Roe means and what's happened since Roe to today. I mean, there have been a couple of different court cases and Supreme Court decisions. Could you kind of trace the development, how we got from Roe to where we are today? Sure. So, I mean, before Roe v. Wade, um, abortion was determined by states. And so there were a number of states that criminalized abortion and there was a movement um, by states, by, you know, abortion rights groups working in the states to try to liberalize abortion laws, um, including in states like New York that even before Roe v. Wade had moved to um, open up abortion access and that had become sort of destinations for people who were seeking abortion. You've had a lot of instances where women had to go up before committees and hospitals and petition for therapeutic abortions. And of course, you know, these policies favored white wealthy women who had access to doctors who could advocate for them. And so it was really this two-tiered system where people could, who could afford to travel to states where abortion was available would do so. And people who couldn't would try their luck with unregulated illegal providers, um, some of whom were safe and some of whom were not. And so obviously many, many, an untold number of women died, you know, in that, especially disproportionately people who were poor and people of color who, who didn't have access to safe providers. Roe v. Wade changed that system overnight, right? So in 1973, the court ruled that there was a nationwide right to legal abortion. And so all of those laws were struck down. And then... Pretty much from that point forward, <laughs> what happened is that the Christian right got mobilized in the states. They allied themselves, especially beginning in the 1980s under Ronald Reagan with the Republican Party. They took a, a president who had been pro-choice when he was governor of California and convinced him that abortion would be a winning issue to get behind for the Republican Party. And over time, what we saw is this incremental push to chip away at abortion take it away for women of color and poor women first and regulate it out of existence in states where that was possible. And the first really consequential chip was the Hyde Amendment in 1976. And this was when Representative Henry Hyde of Illinois 
proposed this ban on federal funding of abortion. He wanted to ban it for everyone. He realized that he couldn't ban it for everyone. And so he would ban it for poor women. He would ban it for people on Medicaid. And this was sort of a a missed opportunity, I think, by Democrats and by the reproductive rights and justice movement to draw a line in the sand and say, you can't come for the least among us and we're going to draw a line here and that's it. And that didn't happen. You know, there, there were efforts, including by the head of Planned Parenthood, Faye Waddleton in the 1970s, who tried to, who was black, first black head of Planned Parenthood, who tried to say, you know, Medicaid needs to be a key issue or they're going to come for everybody else. You know, we have to draw a line here. And there were a lot of leaders in the movement at the time who didn't want to do that. And so what happened is over time, public funding of abortion became this sort of third rail in abortion politics. The Hyde Amendment was reenacted every single year in the budget bill, and it's still in place. And so um, Medicaid funding of abortion is not available unless you are fortunate enough to live in the minority of states where the state pays for that um, under its own you know, state budget. And then in 1990s is when we had Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which was the next sort of really marquee Supreme Court decision to chip away at abortion access. A lot of people thought Roe was going to fall um, then. And what ended up happening is that the Supreme Court found a way to sort of preserve Roe kind of by saying there was still a nationwide right to legal abortion. You couldn't ban abortion before viability. You know, you couldn't impose an undue burden. And that was sort of a tricky standard that, again, like Republican-led states and people who are opposed to abortion have been trying to test and trying to push, you know, ever since, right? Is it is a 72-hour waiting period an undue burden? Is requiring clinics to have, you know, hallways that are a certain width <laughs> and admitting privileges at a hospital, like, are those undue burdens? So that's sort of framed the abortion debate ever since then. And now here we are where 50 years of nationwide legal abortion, where that precedent is going to fall. One of the things that's different, obviously, about abortion now is that, luckily, one of the good things is that there's much more availability of medical abortions. Can you talk about that and what role that has played and will play now? For sure. This is a huge development and a huge change since the 1960s and 70s, where we saw legions of people dying from illegal abortions, right? We now have access to, there's two forms of abortion that if you walk into any clinic today, which by the way, you can still do, abortion is still legal right now in all 50 states. This decision's not official yet. Um, although in Texas, it's only available up to about six weeks, but um So, right. So medication abortion, there's two forms of abortion available. One is a surgical and clinic procedure. The other is medication abortion, which for the first time now accounts for more than half of abortions. 54% of recorded abortions in the United States are medication abortions. And medication abortion is something that does not require the level of training and medical involvement Um, that an in-clinic procedure requires. So with medication abortion, you take a pill called mifepristone that stops the flow of progesterone to the pregnancy. And then you take a medication called called misoprostol, which causes uterine contractions and causes you to pass the pregnancy, um, basically induces a miscarriage. Um, And even people who go into a clinic to have a medication abortion administered, they take that second set of medication at home and they go through that process at home. 
So what we're seeing is a is an uptick in interest and administration of self-managed abortion, meaning people going online, finding the instructions, finding the pills that they need, buying them from overseas places like Aid Access or from a whole host of online pharmacies that sell these pills very affordably online, um, and doing what women across Latin America have been doing for many, many years, which is managing their own abortions um, in situations where it's highly restricted or illegal. Um, should specify, in Latin America, often people are only using the second part of that regimen, misoprostol, because that's more, much more widely available um, than the first pill, mifepristone. Um, and the FDA-approved, you know, regimen involves both of those medications, but um, misoprostol is pretty effective on its own. And you wrote a piece at the New York Times where the pro-choice movement went wrong, which is a great piece. I highly recommend it, and I'll link to it in the YouTube description. Can you kind of summarize some of the things that you discovered or that you argued in your piece? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so one of the major turning points that I looked at in that piece was the Hyde Amendment, was that federal ban on on federal funding of abortion and the sort of missed opportunity to, you know, draw a line there and say, you know, we're not going to allow this. And I think that would have done several things. One, it would have centered Black women and poor women and people who are the most affected by abortion restrictions. And it also would have sort of stopped the floodgates from opening on a whole host of other abortion restrictions that came after that. And I, you know, I think we should say, like, when you look at where the energy and the momentum of the abortion rights movement is right now, a lot of it is with abortion funds, with with grassroots abortion funds that are based in the states that are doing incredible amounts of work moving mountains to get people to the care they need. And their primary job is providing funding to people who don't have Medicaid coverage of abortion, right? An abortion can cost hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, much less if you need to get on a plane or into a bus in order to get one. And so an enormous amount of money and resources and time and energy of the most like radical, well-informed activists in this movement have been dedicated to compensating for the failures of the Democratic Party and, you know, of activists many, you know, years ago to draw a line in the sand on the Hyde Amendment, right? So that's one issue I take up in the piece. Another is the sort of the broader, you know, white-centric nature of the reproductive rights movement and the fact that it's really been focused on a defensive strategy concentrated in D.C. and focused around um, sort of playing whack-a-mole with the worst anti-abortion state restrictions in court instead of fighting an aggressive strategy in the states, trying to build political power in the states and prevent, you know, anti-abortion bills from happening and sort of bolster power in the grassroots. So those are two of the major issues that I look at in the piece. I think if the movement had done a better job of centering Black women, who, as Michelle Goodwin, who's a really amazing scholar on reproductive rights and justice, puts it, you know, Black women were the canaries in the coal mine on a whole host of issues from criminalization of abortion, forced sterilization. You know, their reproductive and bodily autonomy has been under siege in this country for centuries, decades, you know, when it comes to these issues and, you know, the failure to sort of focus on that and to 
allow women of color in positions of leadership to sort of forge the direction of the movement, I think has led us to the place where we are today. And how is it possible that we wound up here when we know that the majority of Americans support Roe or support reproductive rights and reproductive freedoms? How did we get here? That's a really great, enormous question, right? Like, and part of it is that, you know, we're living under minority rule, right? We're living in a, in a you know, regime where the will of the people is not equivalent to the direction of this country. And that's true on abortion and climate change and a whole host of other, you know, issues. Um, and I think one major component of it is the imbalance between a Republican Party that recognized that they could use abortion as the tip of the spear. They could use it as an issue that would help them win over a certain segment of single issue voters that would help them rise to power. And then they could pass bills against voting rights. They could pass, you know, measures to solidify their power in the states, which has always been the base of power for conservatives. And, um, you know, Democrats and um, progressive groups have often fought more focused on national politics. They've often fought in the states and the Demo- I mean, in the in D.C. and in the courts. And, you know, Democrats have just not um, put up a fight to defend abortion rights. There's been this mismatch between a Republican Party that seized on this as a defining issue and a Democratic Party that's seen it as a liability. I mean, look at President Biden, right? Like he supported the Hyde Amendment, which was a mainstream Democratic position for a long time, right? Like it was only when he was on the campaign trail and it became clear that the the tide had shifted and, and reproductive justice groups had organized around, you know, the inequities perpetrated by this longstanding federal ban when it became untenable and he rapidly had to reverse his position on that. I mean, that's the figurehead of the party right now, right? And he wasn't even willing to say in the aftermath of this, you know, absolutely seismic shift, you know, where we learned the Supreme Court is about to overturn Roe v. Wade. Biden wasn't even willing to say that, we should, you know, the Democrats um, in the Senate should employ the filibuster. We actually have video of that. Trigger warning, everyone. Brad, can we play the video of that, of Biden's comments? Sir, Mr. President, can you do away with the filibuster to codify Roe? I'm not, I'm not prepared to make those judgments now. About, uh, but, you know, uh, I think the codification of Roe makes a lot of sense. Look, think what Roe says. Roe says what all basic mainstream religions have historically concluded, that the, right, that the existence of a human life and being is a question. Is it at the moment of conception? Is it six months? Is it six weeks? Is it, is it quickening like Aquinas argued? I mean, so the idea that we're going to make a judgment that is going to say that no one can make the judgment to choose to abort a child based on a decision by the Supreme Court. I think goes way overboard. Thank you. Okay, so if you were curious about Joe Biden's thoughts on the theology behind abortion, you've got an interesting piece of analysis, I guess, to sink your teeth into. He seems much more interested in that 
than talking about a filibuster. But yes, as someone asked in the questions, did he just name drop Thomas Aquinas? Yeah, he probably was friends with him. Yeah, I mean, right? <laughs> yeah, why go there? I mean, doesn't he have talking points and he really went with that one? He was probably off the cuff. Yeah, and then abort a child. I mean, it's like there is, the, the bar is so low. You know, there is a whole strain of activism and a whole hashtag and campaign to just get Joe Biden to say the word abortion, right? Like that's literally where we are right now. Um, and And, you know, I think it's really says something about the, like, again, like I keep coming back to like, people say like, oh, there's not a movement. Where's the movement? Why aren't people in the streets? Why aren't people rioting? And like, okay, number one, like people are like, there were protests all across the country today. Right. And there will be more. Um, and number two, like an enormous amount of energy has had to go to compensating for the failures of the Democratic Party, including, you know, the figurehead Joe Biden in this moment to, to you know, full throatedly defend the baseline, which is the nationwide legal right to abortion, right? Like, like reproductive rights and justice groups are paying for abortions. They're getting people to appointments. They're keeping clinics open. They're right, like donating to organizations that are providing basic health care because the government and the Democratic Party aren't doing that. And so, um, yeah, I, I really do think it says something that Joe Biden was rambling about Thomas Aquinas instead of, you know, saying, calling full-throatedly for, and there there are, I mean, we saw this when Trump was in office, there's a lot that can be done to either erode or advance reproductive health care access from the position of executive office, right? Like, and yeah, and, and I think Democrats in Congress, I mean, you saw Chuck Schumer out there um, saying that, you know, people need to vote in the midterms because the rights of 100 million women are on the ballot. Um, and I think a lot of people <laughs> responded to that by saying, like, what have the Democrats really offered <laughs> to show that they're presenting an alternative, right? They haven't even be, been able to exert the political will to get legislation to protect the legal right to abortion in every state passed through Congress. So, yeah. On a related note, you have a piece at The Nation called Why is Biden Letting States Like Missouri Defund Planned Parenthood? So can you talk about what the Democrats have done, or in this case, maybe what they haven't done in order to protect abortion rights? Right. I mean, so this is just one example of something that states are moving to defund Planned Parenthood to take away um, even more resources from an organization that has become a basic safety net healthcare provider, um, especially in rural states. And, you know, it's it's pretty concrete, like the Biden administration could step in and enforce rules that exist um, that say you can't do that. And, um and there seems to be, again, this, this attitude among Democrats that abortion is a liability rather than something that they can campaign on in order to mobilize their base and that they can sort of take for granted um, the voters who would be most impacted by abortion restrictions. Um, in terms of what the Democrats have done, you know, one really important piece is around medication abortion. There have been federal regulations for a long time that have regulated the first medication used in the typical medication abortion protocol. They've regulated mifepristone, you know, above and beyond what 
um, is even placed on opioids or the most dangerous medications out there um, for political reasons. It's been very difficult to get that medication. Um, you've had to go in person to a clinic and have a clinician watch you take it in a lot of cases. And um, due to the COVID pandemic, um, rules around that were put on hold and the Biden administration has made that change permanent. And so you can now get medication abortion by mail, um, which is amazing if you live in a state that hasn't banned telemedicine abortion and hasn't, you know, tried to make it. And I mean, now I, I keep having to catch myself and like, oh, wait a minute, like we're, we know now, right. We are going to be living in a post row reality. Um, and, you know, so we're talking about states where abortion is going to be a crime again, possibly, um, and versus states where, you know, you'll be able to go online, meet with a telemedicine provider and get pills sent to your house um, without assuming any legal risk at all. And maybe even have that covered under your insurance, <laughs> right? Versus, I mean, having to travel, having to pay, having to jump through all of the many um, challenging hoops that people in states that have more restrictive policies are going to have to jump through. Well, I thought it'd be really great to expand this conversation since a lot of people obviously have been blaming Susan Sarandon and Bernie Sanders for the latest news. And I want to invite two people on who are themselves both critics of the Democratic Party and also have run for office. So first, I'm going to bring in Rebecca Parson. Hi, how's it going? Good, you? Pretty good. Thank you for having me on. Of course, and Rebecca's been on the show before, but she is a commissioner on the Tacoma Area Commission on Disabilities, an organizer with the Tacoma Tenants Organizing Committee and a congressional candidate for Washington 6th District. And she's the only candidate in the race supporting a $30 minimum wage, Medicare for All, the Green New Deal, and national rent control. So welcome, Rebecca. I'm very excited to get your perspective on this. We're also bringing on Shahid Buttar, a constitutional lawyer, national nonprofit leader, and musical artist who won over 81,000 votes from San Franciscans in 2020 to replace the most powerful member of the House, and that is, of course, Nancy Pelosi. So welcome to both of you. I want to ask you what your thoughts on the role of the Democrats and where we are is, you know, what their role in this quagmire in which we find ourselves has been. Democrats have had 50 years since Roe v. Wade, half a century, to codify Roe v. Wade into law, so to pass a bill guaranteeing the right to abortion across the country, and they haven't. Instead, election after election, they just fundraise off it, the big bad Republican boogeyman, but then they fail to do anything to stop the big bad Republican boogeyman. They just want more and more of your money. And so, yes, it is Republicans' fault. It is the you know far-right uh, theocratic urge uh, and movement that's taken over the Supreme Court that's doing this, but Republicans are doing it, and Democrats are failing to stop them from doing it. And so I think that they, they have a big, big role in this as well. The only place I dissent, I generally agree, I'd say, you know, perhaps Rebecca is being too charitable to Democrats <laughs> insofar as I think that I can look at Pelosi's record and particularly Dianne Feinstein and detect multiple points of active publicity. It's not merely the case that Democrats have failed to hold the line on reproductive right wing has continued its generation long assault. Democrats, particularly corporate Democrats, have been actively complicit. Pelosi had opportunities, for instance, to at least delay, if not derail, the nomination of Justice Amy Coney Barrett and basically put her nomination through the same treatment that Merrick Garland's had gotten before. And she affirmatively declined to do it. Today, 
As a matter of fact, Pelosi was in Texas stumping for Henry Cuellar, who was the last anti-choice Democrat in the House, and for party leader to actively support incumbents who actively undermine the right to choose while mouthing support for the principle, to me, is more disingenuous. It reflects a corruption, unfortunately, and a hypocrisy that we'll have the chance to observe with you all today. Amy, do you have anything to add? I have more questions, but if you, do you want to respond to... I mean, I'd love to hear from what your other guests are doing at the state level, because I think like where we are seeing leadership from some political leaders is at the state level, right? You have um, Oregon coming out and saying it's going to create a $15 million fund for reproductive health using, you know, federal funding. Um, you have Connecticut passing a law, a state law that's going to protect people um, from, you know, attempts by other states to try to punish people across state lines um, for, you know, seeking or providing abortions. So um, I think where we do see momentum and where we do see like good news is at the state and local level um, where, you know, federal leadership from the Democratic Party has been, you know, lacking at best. I think um, there is definitely leadership at the state level, but the concern I have is that Republicans are attempting to push through laws that would extend the jurisdiction um, out beyond their state. So, um, for example, in Idaho, there was recently a law that it's a crime to seek uh, medical care, trans-related medical care for your trans child, and it's also a crime to cross straight state lines to do it. And then we had during, you know, the night... Um, 1800s, you know, certain states had outlawed slavery, but there was the Fugitive Slave Act where um, the states that did have slavery were allowed to go into those states, you know, searching um, because they their state law extended beyond their borders. So that's what I think the Republicans are pursuing right now. So even if, you know, Governor Inslee, the governor of Washington state said, Washington is a pro-choice state. Okay, great. As long as that lasts, you know, until the Republicans find a way to um, make this national. But uh, go ahead, Sean. Well, just to extend on your point, I think, to you know, Rebecca's noting that the the state momentum behind positive reforms is encouraging in those limited places, but perhaps countervailed by backlash in red states. My concern particularly is that the erosion of Roe leaves the federal judiciary entirely on the sidelines as this right-wing backlash proceeds across the states. And it, it basically resigns much of the country to not having access family planning services. And that, that's a huge problem. It's been, it's been the case, first of all, for a generation, which leads me to another point. I think a lot of the community of advocates surrounding reproductive liberty has failed to sound the alarm over the course of the 15 years that Roe has been basically hanging by a thread. The Carhartt decision in 2007 effectively overruled Roe. And I wrote that at the time. And the entire reproductive liberty community's response was, it still exists. Write us checks. We'll defend it. And like that's not the answer. You know, no no number of checks to the ACLU or NARAL is going to fix this. This has to be a fix through the judicial nominations route. And Democrats have been completely asleep at the switch. I spent years in the early two thousands at the American Constitution Society building a pipeline of progressive jurists for the next Democratic president to appoint. And when President Obama came into the White House, he appointed one of them. His name's Goodwin Liu. He's currently a justice of the California Supreme Court because when his federal nomination became controversial, Obama abandoned him and then ran for the hills. He basically appointed a series of prosecutors and corporate 
lawyers of color called it a day. And now here we are. And this is the consequence of Democrats for decades taking their eye off the ball of judicial nominations, abdicating that arena to the right wing entirely. And, and this is what we get for it, ultimately. I have two questions, but Amy, do you want to respond or ask anything else? Well, I mean, I also think that grassroots mobilization is a key part of that. And I, I actually really think that, you know, part of this is like what went wrong on the abortion rights side. And part of it is like what the anti-abortion movement did really well, which is I think they were actually extremely successful in organizing principally in churches, right, in religious communities, you know, locally convincing people. I mean, if you talk, like I've had a lot of recent conversations with anti-abortion activists who talk about, you know, being at their county fair and, you know, Mark Lee Dixon, who like helped set, lay the groundwork for the six-week ban in Texas, he, you know, remembers like handling fetal models that his grandfather had at the county fair in Texas, right? I mean, like that level of like minutia and like person to person kitchen table organizing that's you know the the conservative movement now has that the republicans sort of co-opted that base of power when they took on abortion as a political winning political issue that they could use and manipulate to their advantage um and so and again like i think an enormous amount of grassroots energy on the abortion rights side has had to go into mutual aid work and making sure that people can get to the care that they need. And that has, you know, been a disadvantage again, because the democratic party has not provided an adequate counterpoint um, or fought for, you know, basic coverage of those services activists have had to do it themselves. And so I just don't want to lose sight of, you know, the, the grassroots, um, the importance of having a robust grassroots movement, which I think is there and is building and and has been preparing for this moment, um, you know, in addition to the courts, which obviously are crucially important. I want to know what you guys all thought, a two-pronged question, what Democrats could do right now if they actually wanted to, and also what you think people need to do who want to defend these rights, or maybe I shouldn't even say defend these rights, maybe go on the offensive, because I think that's maybe part of the problem is the pro-choice movement the reproductive rights movement is so afraid of its shadow in some ways and doesn't really know how, I think what the left has been so beaten back and really thinks that our ideas are unpopular and fringe, even though we know that on this issue, especially they're not fringe. Like most people support Roe. What should we be doing in terms of direct action, in terms of grassroots organizing, in terms of demands of Democrats, in terms of protests with what we should be doing around the Supreme Court? What's next? I know that's a really... Easy question, but anyone who wants to take it first can take a stab. Got ideas. I was actually on my way to a rally at Civic Center here in San Francisco when you texted me about this evening. So thank you so much, first of all, for bringing me on. And I think that rapid response mobilization certainly has a role to play, and I look forward to going there as soon as we're done. There's other layers here. I mean, one of the, the unfortunate things to reflect upon is how direct action has been, to some extent, I don't want to say neutralized because that's that's not the impression I want to convey, but the relationship of the media to it has marginalized direct action as a tool to focus public attention. And I'm thinking particularly of the self-immolation on the steps of the Supreme Court a week ago that nobody heard about. And it's hard to envision or imagine a more extreme self-sacrifice than that. And yet it goes without being observed. And so it really does, you know, it makes me think about the need to, to for direct action of the sort that impedes commerce at the point of exchange. 
that's a very different kind of intervention. And I have seen that at least meet a state response. I don't know if it would be the state response that we'd want. I just want to throw on the table among potential alternatives or steps forward for Democrats to do end judicial life tenure. I wrote the article 15 years ago after the Carhartt decision proposing that solution. I'm grateful to Rokana and others have started to gravitate towards it. It remains marginal in Washington as a solution to the court because people are focused on expanding the court instead. It's a really, really bad idea for a lot of reasons. And ending judicial life tenure is a much, uh, it, it's, it's a solution that would allow the opportunity for the law to exist separate from politics, if ever that can be recovered. Whereas, you know, expanding the court sort of dives into the idea of just further politicizing the court and turning it into a mini Congress. And we've seen where that's led. That's interesting. So don't expand the court, just lessen the amount of time that Supreme Court justices are on the court. Congress can impose 18 year staggered terms. And, you know, people think that life tenure is constitutionally required because of the good behavior clause, but in no way does good behavior require life tenure. Uh, It just means that you can't fire people arbitrarily. So if Congress were to set statutorily mandated 18-year staggered terms, it would force a vacancy every two years. It would eliminate the sort of politicization. Well, it wouldn't eliminate. It would dramatically reduce the politicization of the nominations process because it wouldn't be just sudden windfalls that parties try to capitalize on. You know, when you, when Merrick Garland's nomination comes to mind, a perfect example of this, just the way it was immediately seized on and blocked by the GOP as an opportunistic pretense of just delaying the nomination until they had their grubby hands on it. And then, you know, that basically swung the court. And frankly, I go back to the book, Bush versus Gore decision, which sort of also swung the court when Rehnquist picked the successor effectively and directly by choosing the president. So like we've seen the Supreme Court in a sort of constitutional exile, you know, sort of like it, it asserting itself well beyond its design for decades. And the idea that justices are allowed to serve for life is preposterous. I mean, it's like the closest thing to aristocracy in a country that is, you know, was once proud of our democracy and to allow these right-wing ju- justices to serve on the court for decades when their path to the court was you know, full of lies, obfuscation, Kavanaugh, you know, might've been a torture lawyer. Like there's so many things to consider, ethical lapses. Uh, I think ending ending life tenure by imposing staggered terms is a institutionally respectful way to force turnover on the court. And, and we need it. Otherwise we're going to be under the sword of Damocles, you know, wielded by these or, you know, hung with a thread, perhaps I'm mixing my metaphors here. We'll be under the thumb of these justices for too damn long otherwise. Rebecca, Amy. I would say the Senate, Senate Democrats need to abolish the filibuster because um, an act that would basically codify Roe v. Wade into law has already passed the House, um, but it died in the Senate. And Democrats put it forward for a vote, um, but the way it was framed was like, this is going to go through for a vote, but it's just to show that we tried. We know it's not going to happen. It's like, well, you have the majority. You have, uh, <laughs> you know, what, what is the point of having the White House, Senate and House if you're not actually going to use that power? And I saw a tweet today. I can't remember who now, but it said, you know, it's amazing how Republicans can get through their entire agenda when they're in the minority and Democrats can't get through anything when they're in the majority. And that is a slight exaggeration, but it is still like, why, why are, why are Republicans able to do so much more from the minority as the minority party than Democrats are when they have the majority? Why are we told to vote harder when we voted and got you in and now you're telling us there's nothing we could do. So just vote harder 
Why? Why are we just going to vote super hard? Are we going to like double X max our voting and that'll make you actually get in and have a spine? It's just so frustrating. Like in the Senate, get rid of the filibuster and pass this bill that already passed in the House. And there's also additional, um, especially Representative Ayanna Presley has put forward a number of really good bills. For example, uh, repealing the Hyde Amendment, uh, making um, the morning after pill uh, available without a prescription. So there's other things even just beyond codifying Roe v. Wade into law that Democrats could do since they have control of the Congress right now. And in terms of grassroots, what we can do, I think it's good to go to rallies, good to have protests, and that we should take it a step further and do direct action and look at see, okay, like, for example, that guy who... Um, in front of the Supreme Court, I mean, that's an act, to me, it speaks of desperation, um, or like, this was, this. it's a very extreme thing to do, but he um, he chose to do it, and uh, it, it made almost no news at all. But my experience with uh, direct action here in Tacoma is, um, you, we were actually able to get a lot of attention when we just came out guns blazing, like, we've done this action, here's the press release, here's the press conference, this is our spokesperson, and just like, do a full court press, and I think that's what needs to happen. What would that look like exactly? Um, there could be a direct action in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, there could be a direct action that somehow finds like the, the financial levers. How do we shut down, find a, a financial you know hinge point that we can shut down to impact this? So look for those very strategic key things. And yes, that is you know the step up. It is a ramping up from a protest to a direct action. You're more likely to get arrested for a direct action. But uh, this is a very serious situation. And so that's what I think uh, we should be doing. Can you just briefly share some of the direct actions that you did? Yeah, so uh, the first one we did was um, the winter before this last winter. Um, we occupied a, a middle school that had been empty for 12 years. Um, part of our coalition was members of a homeless camp, um, and we'd been working with them, you know, members of our coalition with them for over a year. So we had a very close-knit relationship, and we said to them, hey, there's a school we could occupy it, turn it into emergency pandemic housing. They were all in, so we did that. Um, and what we decided to do was to try to use the media um, to get the public on our side, which we did succeed in. So we got into this middle school, we brought in people with us, like electricians, plumbers, uh, licensed ER doctor, um, all kinds of people to go in with us and rehab the building and actually turn it into something like a home. And uh, we had neighbors from around the neighborhood bringing us casseroles and stuff because they were excited about what we were doing. Uh, we got kicked out the... Um, that same night, unfortunately, but then we went on to do other stuff. So um, this was an idea we got from the Young Lords for a Puerto Rican group in the 1970s. Uh, we went around to encampments because one of their longstanding requests was to pick up trash for my trash service, just like the city does for house people. They refused. So we rented two really big uh, rental trucks, um, collected over 100 big contractor bags full of trash, threw it into the truck, dumped it in front of City Hall, took a picture, put it on a press release. Um, and then three hours later, they picked up the trash. And they're very unhappy about that, but they did start providing trash service after that. And then our last big action that we did was... Um, a hotel that was empty because this was, you know, of course, during COVID um, over a year ago, it was empty. And so we uh, booked on Christmas Eve. We paid for people, 43 people to move in and stay over, uh, stay in hotel rooms for Christmas Eve. Christmas Day morning, we went to the owner 
respectfully said, um, you know, we are not going to pay for it anymore, but we want to help you get the county to pay for it because there's all this money. FEMA is providing 100% of reimbursement. So we want to work with you to make this happen. Um, and they actually were able to stay there for uh, 10 nights. So there was, it, uh, the, it grew. So there was like over 50 people who stayed in this hotel um, from Christmas Eve past the new year and word got out through the whole homeless community and in Tacoma. And so people would call, um, like my number was on the press release. So they'd call me and be like, oh, I heard about this. Like, is there any room for us? Or um, we would go to camps um, around like after the trash thing and uh, people would just be coming like, oh, um, you hear about those people who picked up the trash? Like, that's so badass. And like, yeah, that was us. Um, and so word gets out through the community and people get really excited and they're happy to help. And I think that's what um, could really, a lot of people are feeling um, cynical, depressed, hopeless, understandably right now. And something I noticed, uh, Peter Kalmus, who's climate, I think, climate Ben or climate human on Twitter, uh, he recently did a direct action, him and another scientist, Jane Gonzalez, in front of a, a bank that supports, uh, that gives money to fossil fuel companies. And he said something that really struck me, like it just really gives you this hope and optimism and action, like you're doing something and you're finally building some momentum. You're not just arguing with people on Twitter and tearing each other apart. And like, should we be doing this or should we be doing that? We'll just get out and do something. And it feels really uplifting. The word starts to spread and people help you in different ways. Like the neighbor who um, baked a casserole for us to, you know, we got a priest to come down um, to lend, lend some legitimacy to our protest. So he came down and he was like, whatever you need, I'll put on my full garb. And he came down in his full garb and I'll decide that he wasn't going to get arrested, but those of us inside the building were. So there's all kinds of different ways you can support a direct action without putting your body on the line for arrest. And it's also extremely empowering and exciting. And you feel like you're really doing something because you are. That's amazing work. Good action. <laughs> Thanks. Amy, what about you? What are your thoughts on what's next? I mean, that's, yeah, that is really inspiring to hear about. And I think just so underscores the point that like politics is local. And, you know, again, like I keep coming back to the anti-abortion movement, like after Roe, right? Like that was their cataclysm in 1973. And they built their power from the state and city level, right? City ordinances, state legislation, let's try it out. Let's see if this works here. While they were claiming the courts, while they were, you know, aligning themselves with the Republican Party, they were also building a really successful local strategy. And, and I think there are really heartening examples of that, you know, cities like Austin, Texas, and New York that have passed historic measures to get public funding of abortion and to, you know, fly in the face of the Hyde Amendment by saying, you know, we're going to get our city or our county or our state to issue funding for abortion and to, you know, get rid of this taboo against um, public funding that's that's been around for so many years. Um, I'm glad Rebecca mentioned the EACH Act, the bill that would repeal the Hyde Amendment. I mean, I think the movement to try to restore public funding and Medicaid funding of abortion has been the most successful example of reproductive health and justice organizing of our time. And I think the most successful part of it is that it's happened not only at the federal level in Congress, where you have this bill that's that's gaining more and more momentum each year to repeal Hyde at the federal level, but you also have states you have counties, you have cities that are taking action, all as part of this coordinated campaign. And they've gained enormous ground. They got 
you know, President Biden to reverse his position, you know, on on this amendment. And we're sitting here talking about it right now. So um, so that's where I see. So, I, you know, if people are wondering what they can do or what they should be doing. Find your local abortion fund. Look at what your city or your town is doing, whether there are opportunities. You know, there's there's towns here in Massachusetts, for example, Somerville, where near where I live passed an ordinance to try to take aim at anti-abortion crisis pregnancy centers, right? So there are things that can be done at the local and state level. Um, and that's where grassroots power starts. Awesome. Well, Amy and I watched this, but I wanted to make sure that you guys had the chance to see this. Did you see Biden's response to whether he would get rid of the filibuster to codify Roe? Did you see this? All right. Another trigger warning. Are you President, do away with the filibuster to codify Roe? You do away with the filibuster to codify Roe? I'm not, I'm not prepared to make those judgments now. About, uh, but, you know, uh, I think the codification of Roe makes a lot of sense. Look, think what Roe says. Roe says what all basic mainstream religions have historically concluded, that Right, that the existence of a human life and being is a question. Is it at the moment of conception? Is it six months? Is it six weeks? Is it, is it quickening like Aquinas argued? I mean, so the idea that we're going to make a judgment that is going to say that no one can make the judgment to choose to abort a child based on a decision by the Supreme Court. I think those way overboard. Thank you. So, yeah, not prepared to do anything about it, but give you his opinion on Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas? Really? Uh, Joe Biden, are you going to eliminate the filibuster? Thomas Aquinas? I mean, I'm not prepared to say, I mean, maybe it would be good. Maybe it wouldn't be good. And, and like, you know, an hour later, probably his press secretary is going to come out because his handlers had a meeting and they're like, oh, crap. You know, he wasn't supposed to say that. And now she's going to come out with a statement saying the exact opposite because he went off, you know, ramble into ramble land. But it's just ridiculous. They ask him about the filibuster and he starts rambling about other stuff. Like, I... I can guarantee you, like when I'm talking to constituents or regular people who are working at Taco Bell or they're an accountant or whatever, do not give a crap about the filibuster if they know what it is. And if you do tell them, they're like, that's the reason that uh, we can't have abortion. And the way he's dancing around it is like you said, Katie, earlier, like afraid of his own shadow. Why are we afraid of our own shadow on this? 70% of Americans do not want to see Roe v. Wade overturned. This is a popular position. And also... All the policies that would make women less uh, likely to need an abortion, like, for example, increasing the minimum wage, Medicare for all, housing for all, like this, the financial independence and stability that women uh, need to then, you know, they would not be in a position to need an abortion as often. Those policies are also extremely popular. So I don't know why it, it's very frustrating to see Democrats behave this way. I would just add to that, you know, in Biden's choice of words, I found not just disturbing, but frankly offensive. There's a point where he referred to a, the decision to abort a child, which is just so straight out of the right wing's like literature. And I don't understand why he and other Democrats don't simply recognize this as a simple reflection of bodily autonomy, the right of women to control their own bodies. It's, it is the most fundamental right. And to even imagine the legitimacy of a government trying to dictate to people how to govern their own bodies and, and limit their life choices around a a mandate to procreate is just so 
absolutely offensive. And the idea that he would toy with it by using this frame that ignores the ultimate at stake to me is offensive, whatever his ultimate decision is. When we talk about the filibuster, you know, I have two thoughts here that are so one of them. On the one hand, everything is held up in the Senate at the moment, voting rights, worker rights, civil rights, you know, we could go on, reproductive rights. It would have made particular sense to have ended the filibuster early in his presidency. He's waited so long that the opportunity to end the filibuster is going to have even less benefit now than it would have had early in his presidency. I remember when Democrats went through this with the nuclear option in the Senate Judiciary Committee on judicial nominations, and they waited most of Obama's term before flipping that switch. And then it got used against them relentlessly under Trump. And you know this is part of the pattern of Democrats failing to take advantage of the levers of power when they have majorities in Congress and setting themselves up to be taken advantage, setting us, we the people up to be taken advantage of by the right wing when the cycles change. Now, when I look particularly, I just want to throw out a couple other thoughts here. One, the Hyde Amendment has come up. So I just want to make sure that all your listeners and viewer, viewers understand the context for it. It's, it's a prohibition on spending public funds on basic healthcare procedures, particularly abortion services for women who need them. Abortion is healthcare. The Hyde Amendment impedes healthcare for women and, and girls and Binary, non-binary folks and trans folks. And, and the idea that what we are talking about here is the denial, it's already bad enough that we don't provide healthcare, but to affirmatively deny it to people is, it's worse than just conservative. It's worse than just reactionary. It's worse than just an offense and an assault on our rights. This is, these, these are ultimately human rights violations that the state is mandating and that Democrats are enabling by, you know, at best doing this talking out of both sides of their mouths. Again, when I when I look at Democrats and the policy record here, I see outright complicity. And, you know, Joe Biden comes to mind. I mean, remember Joe Biden, before he became the president, one of his signature achievements was putting Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court. And I, you know, from Casey to Carhartt to now, I mean, that thread is pretty clear. And Justice Thomas's contribution to this discourse has not been one that any of us could describe as positive. And in the same way that Biden put Clarence Thomas on the court, Dianne Feinstein did the same thing for Amy Coney Barrett. She and Pelosi did as much to put her on the on the bench as any Republicans did. And these are decisions that demand accountability. And I do hope that Democratic voters can see through the partisan spin of Pelosi saying, as Rebecca put it, to vote harder because the people have shown up. We put Democrats in office and we've also seen Democrats in office refuse to show up. And that's exactly why accountability is so necessary. And, and also not just in the political arena, but just to reiterate that proposal around life tenure and judges, also in the Article Three Judiciary. Uh, accountability is a principle here that cuts across branches and institutions, and we the people have to be assertive in imposing it, or we're going to get taken to the cleaners again. Yeah, agreed. Well, just wanted to show a final clip, which is that, so Biden was asked about this leak, but I don't think he actually prepared any statements about this, despite how slick and smooth that Aquinas thing came off. But here's what he did do today. Uh, he went to Lockheed Martin facility where Javelin anti-tank missiles are made. So here's what his priority is. We're making it possible for the Ukrainian people to defend themselves without us having to risk getting a third world war by sending in American soldiers fighting Russian soldiers. My dad used to have an expression, he said, the only war worse than one that's intended is one that's unintended. You're allowing the Ukrainians to defend themselves. So? I mean, there's just such a failure to convey 
the urgency of the situation. I think that's what's been so insulting to activists in the reproductive health and justice movement is like, people are going to die, right? Like, and I don't mean from coat hanger abortions, right? Because as we talked about, there are safe pills available and there are robust networks out there that are circulating these pills and there are ways to get it online. And if you're curious about that, go to plancpills.org and you can find out information based on your state. I mean that we have the highest maternal mortality rate in the developed world. And it's three times as high for black women as it is for white women. And when that reality runs up against total abortion bans and forced parenthood, for the people who are poorest and the people who are already disproportionately impacted by poverty. And, you know, you force those people to stay pregnant because they can't overcome the, the increasing travel barriers that, that are going to be out there. I mean, traveling across half the country in some cases in order to be able to get to care. Um, I mean, I got a preview of this because I used to cover Catholic hospitals, which are and Rebecca, your your state of Washington has some of the highest concentration of these of these Catholic hospitals in the country, um, and they these are hospitals that, under the Catholic rules, ban abortion. And I've talked to women who have almost died in these hospitals because they've come in miscarrying, losing a wanted pregnancy, and if that fetus has a heartbeat, then the they will not be able to get an abortion um, or or end that pregnancy until they're extremely sick, right? They have to like actually be sick enough. Like you have to have certain symptoms in order to reach a threshold of sickness. And I, I talked to a woman who almost died in a hospital in Bellingham, Washington, um, because, you know, she had a uterine infection and had to wait for an ethics panel to say whether or not she was sick enough, right? So that's a sort of preview of the post-Roe landscape that's about to descend on, you know, basically all of the South and, and Midwest and huge swaths of this country. And the, the failure of, of Joe Biden as the figurehead of the Democratic Party to sort of convey the, the urgency of this situation and the fact that this feels like a crisis um, to so many people um, is, is you know, I think really insulting to to people who care deeply about this issue. It reminds me of the, what was it with the witches? You would throw a woman into the water and if she sank, she was uh, not a witch. And if she survived, she was a witch. Like you have to wait until the person is almost dying. Yeah. Yeah. It's win-win because either way you get to kill a woman, which is the goal. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, this has been great. Remember what Rebecca and everyone else and, and Shahid and Amy said before. And we, we don't want to end on that down note, the witch's note. So let's just uh, re- rewind, erase the last stuff that we just said. No, I'm, I'm kidding. That's really actually very important. And it is an important thing because people have to realize it's not about coat hangers. Thank God. Thank God. But it is also a life and death issue. And people will die because of this in a different way from the way that they did before. And I just want to thank everyone so much for coming to this show. Also to the guests, you guys all do great work and I will link to all of your social media and your websites. And um, of course, please like the stream, please subscribe. If you haven't already subscribed, we're going to hit 70K soon. You can support the show at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper show. But just coming and watching and subscribing and liking is, is a great way to support this show. Thank you so much, Shahid, Amy and Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be with you. Thanks for watching the Katie Helper Show, everyone.
again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.